Who will be the new Norwich City head coach? It's the question dominating the thoughts of Canaries fans after Daniel Farker's dismissal. And we'll do our best to bring you up to date with all the latest in the new Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast. Dave Freezer here coming to you in association with Future Radio 107.8 FM for episode 467 of the Pinkin Pod. Joining us is Paddy Davitt and Connor Southwell. We will reflect on Daniel Farker's exit, but I'd imagine most of you by this point have already listened to the live video that we brought you straight after the news was announced on Saturday night when we were still at the Brentford Community Stadium. Boys... How are we after a fairly frantic 24 hours? It's actually calmed down a bit, hasn't it, Pad? Yeah, which isn't necessarily a good thing, Dave, because I think we'd all like to get to the point where uh, we're not scanning various digital platforms for what feels like 23 hours in every 24-hour cycle, just uh, until we get to the point where, bang, official confirmation, Norwich's new head coach is, and then we can crack on. Um, yeah, th- this is always the way with these cycles. There's uh, there's the initial uh, well warmth to the outpouring of the reaction to to the, this particular head coach going, and and that's more than fitting. Um, and then obviously the the actual announcement itself, and as you rightly say, Saturday evening, just hoping to get home and have a nice, quiet, relatively international period, and that went out the window. Thanks for, to that, Stuart Weber, as I told him in a text exchange, but. Uh, <laughs> and then yeah, and then obviously it'll um it'll 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 pick up and, and and again we'll have another spike when, as I say, flippancy aside, they announce who the new manager is. Um but we're in that kind of uh sort of holding pattern now, really, where the calm before the storm, if you want to use that phrase, where yeah, the candidates, or at least the ones who most people think are the candidates are are, are out there. Um and now it just seems to be seem an endless stream of well, I'd I'd rather go for that candidate over this candidate, um, and just on and on and on from pundits to supporters to odds compilers who are probably the only ones who are quite happy the longer it goes because the probably yeah. the richer they get in terms of the money coming into their coffers for the next Norwich manager. But ultimately, um, I think as we sit here just before Wednesday lunchtime. We'll probably know. We'll be out in my, for me anyway, put out my misery by the weekend, I think. That seems to be speaking to the people at Norwich, what they're working towards. That was, to be fair, where they were sort of Monday, Tuesday. That hasn't changed. So unless uh, event events, dear boy events overtake us, then uh, I think by certainly the start of next week, I think everybody will know who Daniel Farker's replacement is. And then, then the focus will shift then to uh, Southampton and Carra Road and uh, what an occasion that could be. Yeah, then it's the feeling of a fresh start, isn't it? Like you say, the, the calm before the storm, but we didn't expect that calm to last too long because the way that this unfolded, Connor, I think everybody's immediate assumption was that Stuart and the board would have somebody in mind and that they would be moving fairly quickly. But the way that things are going so far, that hasn't happened. And officials at the club are very much keeping their cards close to their chest and, and trying to keep the sort of the circle very tight on this, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And and, and I guess you could argue that that's probably in their interest, given what we saw with, mm. with Tottenham in the summer, where we had about, must have, must have been into double figures of names that were, that were out there, um, at, at least linked with that vacancy. And in the end, it probably ended up being the one that maybe was, I don't know, 12th choice or something. And now they've, they've sacked him 10 games later and got the one who's maybe first choice. So look, this is, this is football. It's, it's a weird game. And, um, 
it's unfolded in in a weird way. I mean, certainly for us, it's it's going to be difficult now to go back to Brentford without memories of Saturday. I think, um, irrespective of the game or the situation in the future. So, yeah, there's there's that aspect. I mean, yeah, I think I think it's it's really interesting. This kind of oh well, they they must have. It's an automatic assumption, isn't it? Well, they must have someone lined up. Um, and for sure, they, they probably did their, their due diligence. Um, if there's a few candidates that they're speaking to, then that naturally takes a bit of time and um, the international break does afford them that. So, I don't know, it's difficult because we all ev- everyone wants that decision to come quickly, but equally you kind of hope that they take the time to get it right, if that makes sense. So it's probably mm-hmm. the conflicting um, things with, with the timescale. But realistically, the players aren't at, at Colney until Friday. Um, so this week probably does give them a little bit of time to take stock, to to reach out to people to uh, who knows that there, there may be an a-list the p-list or whatever and that they're, they're, they're working out whether certain candidates are, are actually interested in the job and if they're not then they can move on pretty swiftly so there'll be a lot of processes that are going on and, and as Paz said they're, they're confident of an appointment um this weekend and it's um it's going to be absolutely fascinating as i'm sure we'll get into to see which direction they go in because at the moment i, I would argue that the two favorites in terms of kind of bookmakers odds are um certainly different in terms of profile and maybe in terms of pedigree as well um, both in terms of them being known and uh, not being known um, but this is an appointment that, that Stuart Webber absolutely has to get right and Norwich City absolutely have to get right so I think you you prefer them to take their time to to ensure that they reach the uh, or, or find the right person um, rather than make a swift decision and get the wrong one. Absolutely. Ketil Knutsen Frank Lampard, Dean Smith. We'll come on to all of them shortly. In the here and now, as you mentioned, they're the players who aren't away on international duty. There are 11 who are away. They're back in training Friday and Saturday. At the moment, it'll be head of football development, Steve Weaver, overseeing those things. And I would imagine that it's probably going to be a bit of a mix with the under-23s because we've had the three backroom staff go with Daniel Farker, haven't we? Chris Domagallo was head of performance. Christopher John was uh, an analyst slash first team coach and, and Eddie Reamer, of course, was Daniel's assistant. So I'd imagine that the academy guys will pretty much step into into that situation for the time being and it, because that they know what they're doing in terms of running training sessions. Ed Wooten is still there as the goalkeeper coach as well. He was sort of kept separate to all of this. Um, so... I know where both of you boys were when you found out the news that Daniel Farco was going to be sat because you were stood right next to me and had pretty similar looks on your faces. But I didn't end up catching up with my dad until Monday night. And um, he didn't find out until match of the day. He actually uh, turned off Canary Call um, and had a dinner and they decided they were going to watch a film. And it finished just in time for match of the day. So he said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll watch match of the day as we actually won a game. But at that point, he had no no idea that Farker had gone because I hadn't texted him because obviously we were so busy. And I just assumed that he'd know. <laughs> you know, I, I, things happen so immediately nowadays that I didn't think I really needed to. So then it was not until after the highlights and they get into the analysis with, what was it, Danny Murphy and Alan Shearer, I think, that <laughs> my dad found out that the head coach had left. So I put this out on Twitter earlier um, to see um, if anyone could better it, really. Um, Stuart Lewis said, I met my partner at Heathrow on Sunday afternoon as she returned from a trip. I'd sent her messages about Farkas sacking, but she hadn't seen them. She was elated about the win and wondered what I was going on about. Uh, A few other ones. Um, 
Kev Parker, 73. It's mad to think back in the day, if you missed final score, that you wouldn't know the score until the papers came out the next day. You would ask in the pub and get about five different results back, depending on what time people got their latest update on the radio. I guess he's talking sort of pre-CFAX days there, which would, would sort of date us a bit anyway. Uh, Jenny Collins, I love that, Dave. Proper old school. At non-league matches, brackets with no scoreboard, fans who get there late get told the wrong score all the time. It's incredible. People missing a goal or not realising one was ruled out for offside. It happened last night at Hornchurch. Uh, Sid Sourus says he was at the cinema when uh, when he got a text from a friend. Um, David Maystone, my wife, said when bringing me Monday's evening news, you never said Farker had gone. And my favourite response, which came almost immediately, was from Craig Liam Jones, who said, what? Farker's been sacked. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's an immediate world. And we experienced quite a strange evening didn't we pad with the with the way we found out about it and and the way that well it just caught everyone by by such surprise well i mean the, yeah i mean we've obviously you know we and every other media outlet and uh all the fans with the benefits now of social media in terms of amplifying opinions and views and reactions it's probably we're, we're probably you know we've probably already digested the whole chain of events on that saturday evening but um, for me, it's just in the context of you've won the game, this elusive win at the 11th attempt in the Premier League and for it then to come uh, was such a juxtaposition that I think um, shot probably doesn't doesn't overplay it. I mean, Andrew Obama Daly is away with the Republic now and he, he said that was his reaction. Pure shot when Stuart delivered the news to the, to the squad shortly after he delivered it to Daniel, sadly, in, in the in the confines of the Brentford Community Stadium. So, yeah, and I, and I think a lot of that isn't the... Because if you take a step back, you know, it felt like we were building to this kind of crescendo. I mean, post-Chelsea, post-Leeds, there was a growing constituency who felt time was up for Daniel. So I think it in... Whether wherever you stand in terms of Daniel as a person, as a man, as somebody who represented your football club, I think in the footballing context based on what he hadn't done in the Premier League, not just this season, but two seasons ago. I think you could see why the chain of events led to what happened on Saturday night, but it's the manner of how it happened and the timing of it that seems very strange. I mean, ultimately, there's probably reasons why it had to be so immediate after the game because it was an international period. It was about to embark and you had 10-plus Norwich players scattering far and wide across the continent. So... You know, in terms of the logistics around it, you've got them all in one place, both Daniel, his coaching team, and the players. It does make a lot of sense. But off the back of that elusive win and the manner of it as well, you know, they, they had to dig in and show a lot of fight, spirit, commitment, all the attributes you wouldn't necessarily associate with a group of players who had, to use common parlance, down tools for the manager. That certainly wasn't the case. So, you know, the vast majority of that playing squad was still behind the manager. And you and you saw that in the immediate aftermath. Very rare that a manager is sacked and you get quite a few of, of the players who played for him queuing up to, to wish him the best. And not just the younger end of the scale, the, the, the mentoring element of a Max Aarons or Omabama Daly or Eda. Um, but even the guys like Tim Krull, Timu Puki, Ben Gibson, you know, certainly Gibson and Krull, he effectively rescued them from the footballing scrap heap, the wilderness. Um, and for for that universality of, of reaction, that tells you they didn't see it coming. Um, and neither did we at 
7.30 as it was confirmed on Saturday evening. But is it a shock that he's no longer the manager based on what he wasn't doing in the Premier League? No, I don't think it is. Um, But for me, it's the timing. And he, I wrote about it Sunday and still feel the same. Shabby way to treat a man uh, who delivered what he delivered, irrespective of whether the Premier League was a bridge too far or not. He deserved a better outcome than how it was delivered on Saturday evening. And and I think that's been the tone of a lot of the reaction from the fan base that on a human level, that wasn't the right way to go. Yeah, uh, agreed. Um, but overall, I think it's the right decision. Hopefully that's going to be dictated really by the decision that's taken now, isn't it? If they can bring someone in that bring, provides a market improvement in results and an, an upturn in form and makes them competitive and, and we see different patterns on the pitch from what has happened in that opening 11 games because let's not pretend that they couldn't have lost that game in the second half at Brentford they they tanked pretty much in the second half and were were just clinging on desperately weren't they despite it being a good first half but we'll come to the game um, a bit later but yeah for, for me it's the right decision and that's where we come into it then Connor with that big decision that awaits Stuart Webber um for him, it's kind of his reputation a bit on the line here at the moment as well, isn't it? That if he can get this right, if he can now manage to somehow inspire, uh, make the right decision that inspires that team to survive in the Premier League, then he's going to be, uh, he is already held in high regard, but he's going to be in demand pretty quickly, I think, isn't he? Because that is going to be, I don't think it's going to be a miracle, you know, from everything that Daniel and Stuart had said in the build-up to this season, they felt that they should have a legitimate chance of survival in the Premier League this year. And they clearly still do. They're only five points adrift with 27 games to play. If they did it, it's going to be a really, really exciting story. So let's bring in the names. Uh, Ketil Knutson, if I come to you on him first, Connor, because you've been able to do a little bit of uh, of background work on him, haven't you? And He's the man who's still second in the odds. I've got them in front of me here. So as of Wednesday, late morning, we've got Frank, this is Skybet, Frank Lampard, 8-15, to 15, Knutson at 3-1, to one, Dean Smith at 6-1, to one, and then everyone else is pretty long. So, yes, this is a man who seems to fit the Weber profile, I think it's fair to say, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, he does. He does. A really interesting coach at a really interesting club, I would say. And certainly ticks the box in terms of experience. He's been coaching for, for 15 years uh, in Norway. He's had this job for, for three years. He's pretty much transformed um, Bodo Glimt from a, a club that bounced between the first and second division to Norwegian champions, essentially. He hasn't done that um, entirely on his own. There's there's a very strong uh, network of, of young players. About 40% of their squad, I, I think, uh, are either homegrown or from their academy. Um, Matthias Norman used to, used to play for Bodo Glimt. Um, and yeah, with a, a really interesting style of play, someone that you would say is uh, probably fits what Norwich want to do in terms of keeping possession, um, a four-three-three system by by nature, but a very attack-minded one. It essentially becomes I've got to do the maths here: a two-one-four-three. Uh, that's ten, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think, but that, that's, basically, that's basically that's basically what it, I'm sure someone will tell me if I'm wrong. But um, if not, then you can work it out. Um, it's just a four-four-two in attack, isn't it? Two, pretty much one, yeah four, three, yeah so, yeah basically um but he's, he's quite he's quite progressive quite modern very good with young players has developed a, a, a lot of them of course Bodo Glimp the club that that beat Jose Mourinho's Roma 6-1 in mm, yeah. in Europe last month which kind of um, brought them into the mainstream a little bit so 
Yeah, I mean, he's he's an interesting coach, you would say, given um, Stuart Webber's track record of, of plucking, maybe, I don't want to say unknown, because I think that's probably a little bit disrespectful to him, to be honest, because he's uh, of what he's achieved at that football club. But maybe lesser known, you would argue, and it, certainly on these shores um, of a coach, he, he would tick that box. And I think he's got people quite excited by all accounts um, because of all of those elements and the job that he's done um, there, whether though, whether those sort of skills are transferable to the Premier League, I suppose, is probably a different debate. Uh, a little snippet that I'll, I'll, I'll give people: if it is, if it is to be, uh, if it is to be him, his current assistant manager used to be a fighter pilot in Afghanistan. So that's uh, that's an, that's another story in itself. Um, I think he, he he describes him as kind of like a mental skills coach, which is which is really interesting. But yeah, but um, this yeah, he's, he's an interesting one. Um, and I think he's he's going to be highly sought after because of the job that he's he's done at Bodo Glitt. I mean, you did a story today, Dave, about Rosenberg in Norway. I'm sure there'll be countless others as well. But um, yeah, a really interesting head coach who's basically transformed um, a, a club that was uh, a yo-yo team by all accounts, if you want to use that term, I suppose, into a, a real powerhouse and arguably the best team in Scandinavia. Yeah, so if he comes in, we can expect Norwich to win the Premier League title, to beat Roma 6-1 in Europe. It's just exactly that. Be- it's going to be nice and easy, yeah. Um, <laughs> that was the, yeah, I mean, the heaviest defeat of Jose Mourinho's career. That's a real feather in his cap, isn't it? It's, he has got an impressive CV and it, it does seem to fit the model, as, as I said earlier. And we did a, a poll, as as we tend to do, um, at pinkin.com. We got over 7,000 people take part in the end. Um, and we just kept it to the, those three candidates that I've mentioned, Knutson, Lampard and Smith. And then we did give the option of other, but only 6% went for that. And the, we asked people to suggest names. And the, I think the only ones really were Roy Hodgson, Lucien Favre, and there was someone else. But okay, it doesn't come to mind. But anyway, that doesn't really matter. But Knutson came out top with 46% of over 7,000 votes, which is a very good sample size, obviously. And then Lampard, not far behind in 38%, and Dean Smith, only with 10%. So, Pat, if I come to you on Lampard, he's kind of the polar, not maybe not polar opposite to Nutson, but he's more of a traditional high-profile appointment, isn't he? The sort of person where you would hope that he's going to inspire the players and his reputation will do a, a certain amount um, of sort of his duties. But I should probably just emphasise again, as, as we did say earlier, that Norwich are keeping everything very, very close to their chest, aren't they? So we still don't know for certain that these two are the the sort of main candidates. That, that's from everything that we can work out at this stage. But we know how Stuart Webber operates. I still wouldn't be at all surprised if he had a wild card up his sleeve that he's just going to pull out that nobody's expecting at all. That wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Yeah, I mean, you only have to go back to his transfer activity in relative recent windows. You know, mm. I don't think there was too many who knew who... Shemi Poeta was before he came through the door uh, at Al. So um, that is always exactly yeah. Uh, Emi Buendia, we don't need to go there, but uh, I think it, it does seem to be indicating or does seem to be pointing to the two we've, we've mentioned um, already on the podcast. So for me, you've got Knutson would be the as Connor rightly mapped out the one who, who seems the perfect overlay onto. Because essentially, a lot of what he does is what Daniel Farker did, or, or certainly came with a reputation of doing. And um, so, as as a as a fit to the model, as a piece in the jigsaw, he looks far better suited than a Frank Lampard. Um, but then Frank Lampard, because as you referenced there, what what a what a name he is in the game, what a reputation. Um, 
and the instant respect he would command inside that Norwich dressing room. And ultimately, let's go back to you know Saturday night and the club statement. Stuart Webber's comments in that club statement, this decision we feel has been made to give us the best chance of retaining our Premier League status. So that is, in the here and now, the priority. End of. It is retaining their status. Otherwise, they persevere with Daniel Fark, they go back down to the Championship and they have a double title winning coach at that level. So if the priority is these next 27 or so games, whoever comes in will need to immediately hit the ground running. And if you're Frank Lampard and you walk into that dressing room next week, hypothetically, then there's not a player in there who would look at him and think, I've got a better career going than you because he he was a stellar <laughs> player for club and country. 106 caps, I think he had for England. He won everything with Chelsea, Champions League. I think he won the Europa as well, off the top of my head. Multiple titles at Premier League level. Um, and alongside Gerard, probably the best two central midfielders, Paul Scholes, you'd probably throw in there as well, of their generation. Um, an absolutely phenomenal player and, and a professional as well, because I don't think he was blessed necessarily with maybe the innate skills of a Scholes or a Gerard, but he made the most of his career. He extracted everything. You know, he's... You obviously you you read about these players and and the anecdotal evidence. He was just voracious. His attitude to training, you know, on the training ground, honing his skills, um, that mindset, that drive, are all skills that I'm sure he's brought into his management. So that to me would 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 be immediately make sense. But I just think beyond beyond the initial uplift, um, you know, is his coaching career to date one that would would fill you with confidence that he could, in a mid to longer term setting, be the right person. You know, he, you could argue, yes, he when he went to Derby, he did show a lot of faith with young players, you know, principally some of those lads he got from Chelsea, you know, Tamori and, and Mason Mount, who were part of his Derby team that he took all the way to the Championship playoff final. So, yes, it looks like he, he does believe in young players. And of course, you know, when he got into the Chelsea job, who, who, did, he, who did he first pull through? Billy Gilmore, who we know, for various reasons, it hasn't worked out so far under Daniel Farker at Norwich. But, but I don't think you could you could argue Frank Lampard's credentials in terms of backing young players. But there's there's too many there's, for me. There's a lot of imponderables about you know what type of coach is he? You know because we haven't enough of a body of evidence really. He had that one season or two seasons or so at Derby, um, and then you know thrown straight in probably too early at Chelsea. You know where you know he's a legend, but it still didn't save him from. Obviously, getting getting uh, pulled out of the firing line at the start of the year, so it's a really, really interesting dynamic. If you just study those two, who would appear to be the front runners, yes, while accepting there may be others under the radar that we haven't maybe seen mentioned too much. Um, and if you're Stuart Weber, I'm not sure. I'm not sure which way you go. Do 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 you tip towards the Frank Lampard walks through the door? There's a good chance we, he's going to get a tune out of these players in the in, in the short term, and it's the short term where it needs to happen, particularly with the next run of winnable games starting with Southampton. Um, but then you know that new manager bounce once the shine or, or the allure wears off. Um, if it hasn't happened, then has he got the experience? Because ultimately, there's one thing we do know definitively: Frank Lampard has never played, never managed in a Premier League relegation scrap, and that's where he finds himself ultimately, if he takes on this role. So that has to be the huge question mark. Is he Does he have the experience in the role for the situation he's going to inherit, hypothetically? So as we understand it, I mean, the, there was a report earlier in the week that he'd actually met the Norwich board. I think it was Monday night. Well, that was Jack and Ori. That, ha- that hasn't happened. Um, but 
there, we do believe there has been talks with him and his advisors um, and whether they progress further. Well, as I say, we're here Wednesday afternoon. Thing, things will play out in due course. But I think with Lampard, what isn't helping is is the Villa situation. The fact that Dean, and that might segue nicely into the Dean Smith line, but but because there is, a, let's be honest, probably a more attractive job in the Premier League currently available. Yes, it looks like Steven Gerrard may be you know, a very, very warm order to take on that role. But the fact that if you're Frank Lampard and you're sitting there and yes, you may have made overtures in terms of the Norwich position, but if Villa is still there as well, I'm sure, and Harry Redknapp on TalkSport yesterday morning said, categorically, Villa is a job that would interest his nephew. So, you know, that muddies the waters a little bit for me. Uh, until the Villa position is resolved, then then if you're Frank Lampard, you're going to hang fire and see what happens in that area. And if you're Norwich, you can't really allow it to sort of lap into next week because ultimately, you know, they have a massive game on the horizon against Southampton. And the earlier, ideally this week, but the earlier next week that that person is in position, the better, I think, they are to go out and get a result, which they need to do against Southampton at Cairo. Yeah. Um, One nice stat, which I noticed from who scored, so that Lampard faced Norwich 15 times as a manager and a player, has never lost. Uh, 11 games as a player, eight wins, three draws. Uh, he was on the pitch for when Zola scored that goal in the FA Cup. And what was that, 2001, I think it was? 2002. Um, he scored in that game as well when, when Zola scored that famous back heel flick in the FA Cup replay. Um, four goals, five assists. So he enjoys playing against Norwich. As a manager, Norwich drew at Derby, didn't they? It was the 4-3 chaos um, in the home game when the floodlight went off and then, you know, the Chelsea won, won both of the games under him um, two seasons ago as well. So, yeah, it's he was obviously a top player. And, and I do wonder whether in the circumstances, the whole long-term plan and and the way that you're putting a philosophy in and stuff just in the here and now just doesn't matter. You know, if you have to make a change again next summer, then so be it for the here and now. I just wonder whether Stuart Weber is thinking, no, we've got to go for someone who has actually got Premier League experience, who actually is going to command the respect of the players straight away because there is no time for messing around. You can't give the new manager, you know, six, seven, eight games to really get their uh, feet under the table. Norwich have got to hit the ground running. They've got to get a new manager bounce and they've got to start getting some upward trajectory and 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 showing that their heads are above water on the pitch very quickly. Um, let's come to Dean Smith then, Connor, because that did, as Pad says, give a new complexion to everything on Sunday when Villa pulled the trigger as well. I think it's five successive defeats for them, wasn't it? They've had injuries. Things just haven't quite worked out for them. Obviously, they lost Grealish in the summer and things like that, despite being a, a Villa fan. I think for me, uh, I don't know what you, you think, he, he seems like a decent candidate, but a bit like with Knutson, because Knutson needs still needs two wins to to seal the title with with Bodo Glimp, doesn't he? He's still in Europe, they I think they because they, they, they've played Roma twice, haven't they? So they've got the two smaller teams in that group, so they could get into the knockout stages of that. So does the timing work for him? Similarly, Dean Smith, I guess, is a bit like Steve Bruce. He's just come out of a real bruising situation. Is he going to want to go straight back into things? Yeah, and it's it's very rare, isn't it, that you see a manager sacked one week and walk straight into a, a a job the week after. In fact, I'm I'm struggling. I've been trying to think about this for a while. I'm sure there are examples, but I'm struggling to think certainly of any recent high profile examples of a coach being sacked and then walking into an, a a job um, seven days later. So for that reason alone, I think this is unlikely. Which um, 
you know, in many ways is, is a little bit of a shame because I think Dean Smith is is a very good coach by all accounts. Um, clearly, the, the Villa situation, I think, you, as Paddy said earlier, it's a, a really attractive job for, for somebody to go and achieve. It was always going to be difficult after they lost Grealish and um, spent a lot of money. Uh, you know, when you spend money, expectations go up irrespective of, of, of which players have walked out of the door. So, yeah, I, I just think it comes too soon. I think you'll probably want to spell out... Um, uh, of, of management and and I think if we if we're talking about Norwich doing due diligence and and sort of knowing which direction they wanted to head in before they um, they removed Daniel Farker from his post and Dean Smith wouldn't have been available at that point so I think it would have to be Norwich would have to really like Dean Smith and Stuart Webber would have to really like Dean Smith to deviate away from maybe their their original plan I would say I, I could see why he would fit and I could see why there would be an attraction to him. I think it's just whether the timing lines up. I think if, if Dean Smith would have been sacked a month or so ago, then this debate might be a little bit different, but I, I don't see it at the moment. And um, just to kind of pick up on, on the chat that you guys were having a, a, around Lampard, I suppose, and you can include Smith in this as well, I suppose it kind of broadens it out a little bit because um, Norwich are very keen, uh, and we know this, to, to send out a message that actually they, they want to stay in the Premier League. That's why they, they sacked Daniel Farker. Um, for me, just to maybe play devil's advocate with an appointment, maybe of an obscure coach, if, I, if I'm a player walking into Colney on Monday and you've got the choice between Knutson or, or Lampard, which one is going to make you sit up and go, oh, OK, this club is serious about staying in the Premier League? It's Frank Lampard, isn't it? Um, I think if, if, if you're essentially plucking a coach out of somewhere and then saying to Premier League footballers, right, he's going to be the guy that's going to mastermind your, your, your survival and they all go, well, who is he? Then I think that's that may be a little bit of a problem. But you know who knows? Who knows? Uh, only the players that could could answer that themselves. And I think the whole debate probably shows where where Norwich are at the moment as well, because um, the three candidates that we're talking about all have all have flaws, and and, and that's um, undeniable. With Nudson, it's it's probably experience certainly in in, in English football um, in, in the Premier League. With Lampard, it's well, what is he as a coach? Is he good enough? We, we as Paddy said earlier, we don't have a, a big enough body of evidence. And with Dean Smith, well, what was behind those failures at Villa? Was it him? Was it the fact that he had quite a few injuries? Was it um, Jack Grealish, actually, who brought them a lot of success? There, there are a lot of questions. And I think when, when Norwich City are at the moment, where they're not certainly not in the top tier of recruiting for a manager, they're probably not in the second tier either. They're, they're probably in the tier below that. So I think any appointment that comes is, is probably going to have um, things that people look at and go, oh, I don't quite like that or I don't quite like that. And I guess it's in many ways... Um, similar to the recruitment of a player it's it's kind of the, the position that Norwich City are in now you're almost looking for potential aren't you so I, I think it's really interesting I've got a funny feeling as we were kind of debating earlier that we don't actually know the name of, of, of who it is yet but um, I can certainly see why all three would make sense in different kind of situations and um, I think in many ways all of them would mark a slight change in what Norwich City are trying to do um, Dean Smith, I just, I, I think he's probably the unlikeliest of the three purely because of timings, to be honest. I think if Norwich had just been relegated back to the championship, he would be absolutely perfect. But I'm not sure about this situation. Maybe, maybe. But with, with Lampard, I feel like there's an element of, if that was who they went for, that that's almost sending a message of, there's no more little old Norwich. We're not this manager isn't going to be talking about, oh, you know, because that people got annoyed with Daniel, didn't they, towards the end about how he was almost become Hewton-esque in terms of bigging up everyone else. He's been too nice, wasn't he? He was not sending out enough of a um, sort of steely 
uh, attitude. Although, actually, I, I think he often was saying the right things, Daniel, but I think they tended to get lost because he would go on at, at length in his answers and he would sort of say both things. And he would say, yes, we want to go there and be greedy for goals and show our spirit and show that we want to. But he would also say things along the lines of, um, you know, that, that Brentford are such a good side. And and that that element of still being a little old Norwich is where they need to shake off, isn't it? If they really want to be in the Premier League. And as we've said in, in previous pods, or certainly I've said, it's this this season is just massive as a self-funded club, isn't it? We'll have the AGM coming up soon. The shareholders will have the opportunity to um, quiz the owners and things like that. If they can just survive that one first season as a club who are self-sufficient, it totally changes the game in terms of what you're able to do financially. And then you start to build and then you can start to think about whether you can put another tier on the city stand, for instance, whether you can put in safe standing, all that, all those things which are a little bit on hold the next stage of the club development, that's where they need to head towards. Welcome to the new normal. Hello, and welcome to this series of Unfinished with me, Charles Thompson. Welcome to Weird Norfolk. Welcome to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast. From true crime to football, politics to folklore, for more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com forward slash channel forward slash Archant. Newcastle have also appointed Eddie Howe. We should um, say that has been in the works for a little while. Briefly, Norwich were off the bottom of the table and the richest club in the world were bottom. Um, but they then got their uh, draw at Brighton, which uh, moved them back above. So we shall see how Eddie Howe does things there. But, Pad, I just wanted to come back round to Daniel, really, because um, we all had a lot of experience with him and there's a lot a lot of warmth. There's been an outpouring of, of love almost for him. And, and I suppose that's partly because people were feeling a little bit sorry for, for how he was dealt with. But you um, you probably interviewed him more than than anyone, perhaps may, maybe other than, than Chris Gorham. You and Chris probably are certainly the, the, the two out, out, out in front. And you will have interviewed him in all sorts of different scenarios. I remember I was being in his office when he signed his contract, was it before the Hull game in 2019, um, and chatting to him there and obviously pre-season and things like that. So all sorts of weird and wonderful locations. But in general, just as, as a man, he was um, he was he was great to deal with, wasn't he? And he was as as sort of um, decent and and nice as he was off camera as he was on camera. Yeah, no, he wasn't one of those who turned it on when there was a, a sky camera, for example, in in his face, and he was sweetness and light, and then a bit of a tyrant off off camera. Uh, there might be one or two Norwich players currently who, who dispute that version of of Daniel Farker, but. Just, just as you were talking about locations, I tell you the most bizarre location I interviewed him was on a pre-season tour where it was before a training session. Um, and we'd set up um, like a kind of he was in a single chair, I was in a single chair. But then, bizarrely, I don't know why this this came to pass. It was directly behind the goal that like Pookie and the, the, they're doing their pre-training warm-up. So basically, you've got Pookie et al firing balls into the goal, and not all of them. Maybe in the current climate, this isn't a surprise. Not every ball on target was going on target. They were getting fired out. And, and when I say just behind, I mean literally just behind the goal. Me and the coaches formed like a wall, didn't we? Yeah, it was we like an overflow area. Yeah. So, I mean, to be fair, when we started the interview, they hadn't actually come out onto the training pitch, but very soon it became apparent. And then you, 
Daniel had his back. The worst of it was, was I could see it because I was facing the goal, but Daniel had his back to the goal. So he had no idea, A, what was happening, B, who was taking pot shots. Where, where, but either side, I could see very nervous coaches fearing what could happen if, uh, you know, Pookie skied one, it landed on the back of Daniel's head. So suffice to say that interview got ended pretty quickly. So that was the most bizarre. But um, all joking aside, yeah, no, what a, what a fantastic man to deal with uh, on a on a in a personal relationship level. Yeah, I mean, you know, when things aren't going well, and thankfully there wasn't too much of that really. You know, the two championship title winning seasons, it was it was pretty universal sort of support towards the guy and, and his team and what he had achieved. Premier League era, well, I think that kind of got overtaken by you know the, the, this pandemic that obviously first developed midway through and, and the whole project restart period. So there wasn't really too much that you could ultimately get into about. And, and even this 10, 11 games, you know, where we've had to be fairly strident in certain situations, um, you know, I had an inter- well, we had an interaction with him Sunday night, you know, within 24 hours of the, of the decision being made. And, 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 and the fact that he would proactively send us messages is a measure of the man, given how disappointed and upset and probably hurt he still was feeling. But but it, even within that, you know, about, you know, how how we'd covered him and, and the club he always felt was fair and there was a respect on both sides. And and as I say, you know, not just in terms of uh, media, but but the fan base. that you, you can't fake that. You can't fake the reaction for the vast majority of the fan base in terms of the the emotions he stirred and and the feelings and the memories, the fantastic memories that he will have left um, those set of fans in the last four, four and a half years. And, and even if it, you know, end, it ended as it did, the fact that, you know, he went out with a win, celebrating with his players, celebrating with those away supporters, those lucky few at Brentford. Um, I think that was entirely fitting because uh, he certainly deserved at the very least that. And, and I would imagine when the dust settles, at the right time, when he does return to Car Road, he will get a reception uh, befitting the legacy uh, and the impact he had on on fan on fans, and um, and and he deserves that at the very least because ultimately it wasn't words, it wasn't it wasn't playing to the gallery, he, he wasn't trying to curry favour when he talked about the affinity and the attachment he had to this place, you know, his second home, how he bled yellow and green, um, how he actually turned down. Offers, particularly after the two title wins, there were other clubs who wanted to take him because his star was in the, on the rise. But no, he still felt he had un- unfinished business here at Norwich um, and he rejected those overtures. And yeah, uh, a very special individual and, and uh, he was good for Norwich and Norwich were good for him as well. And you would imagine, despite how it's ended this season, uh, his, his stock and his CV is sufficient that probably back in the Bundesliga, he should get himself a very good job, I think. Yeah, I don't think we'll be seeing Daniel pop up at Ipswich <laughs> but, <laughs> somehow. But uh, yeah, I mean, he he's not solely responsible for it and not, obviously didn't get everything right, you know, for a, as good as he was when Wes left and, and Tete and Francis left, there were some players that it went completely badly with. Obviously, we've had Cantwell recently that seems to have pretty much um, turned sour, but Leitner, Dermich, um, even Steepman a little bit, maybe, you know, he... he as much as he was a nice guy, he didn't take any nonsense either. He was always very tough on the players, right from, I remember in, 
in that first season, like when Max Aarons first got into the team, he was always on Max and he was always on Todd. He was, you know, that's that's to me always seemed like where his real passion was in developing the young players. And that's what he really found satisfying. But but when he came up, maybe against sometimes the players with the bigger egos and a bit more swagger and things, maybe that's where he, he, he wasn't quite as comfortable. Um, but yeah, it was almost, to me, it felt like a cultural revolution. And it feels like... That 2018-19 season almost feels like ancient history already because we've just gone through that kind of agonising behind closed doors season where obviously on the pitch, the achievements were so special and were record-breaking in many ways. But because the fans weren't there, it is not ever going to be remembered in the same way. And Connor, that that season in particular was, was very special. But I, I always go back to right at the start, right that first game at Fulham, Nelson Oliveira, um, takes off his shirt and does the stupid thing that he did, which basically sealed his fate as an Norwich City player under under Daniel Farker eventually. They probably should have just got rid of him immediately because it was pretty disgraceful what he did to, to the guy in his first job for having the temerity to bring him on as, as a substitute so he could score an equaliser. But th- that first press conference after it really set a tone, didn't it, when he said it's not about the name on the back of the shirt, it's about the badge on the front. And all those lengthy monologues, whether it's talking about Angus Gunn having legs like Kate Moss or his various analogies that he went off on, his character is what really went to the heart of Norwich fans, I felt. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's that's probably why you've seen the reaction that, that we've seen that, that's been so warm. I think it's probably rare for, for a manager or a head coach to get sacked um, uh, and there be such an outpouring of uh, mm. of love and, and, and lots of memories to, to take along the way. It's quite it's a rarity in football, to be honest, that anyone leaves a club and uh, and and on such a positive note, I suppose. Um, and as Paddy said, there's a nice um it was a nice ending. I think the fact that he ended in front of the away fans, uh, doing doing the waves that we've um, we've all come to to know and love. Um, and yeah, I, I mean he's he he was. I mean we've got to remember the the position that he he inherited that he picked up. Norwich City were uh, just had a season of of underperformance really under Alex Neil. They, they were going in a new direction. He had an aging squad. He had to he had to deal with the fact that there wasn't a lot of money. He had to produce young talent almost immediately, really, because of the financial climate. Um, wasn't overly happy with with the Alex Pritchard decision, um, and so I think he's had he's had to he's he's had some difficult situations and and difficult um, stuff to deal with during his time. But I think he he probably made Norwich City fans believe again. I think that's that's probably fair to say, and and he's probably um, changed maybe people's outlook on football. I know it certainly changed mine uh, in, in terms of how maybe you have to look at it in a bit more of a long-term uh, view, certainly sort of season by season, how everything isn't defined by one game. I think he's, um, I mean, Paddy summed him up as a man, but as a coach, the way he implemented how he saw football. And I always think that the best coaches in in football have kind of the perfect game in their head. And it's just about making the players believe in what they're trying to do. And he made every, well, the vast majority of players that worked under him believe in what he was trying to do. And as Paddy said, we saw that right to the end at Brentford, who even though you can maybe question the direction in which the style had gone, there was no change really in terms of commitment or energy or work rate or um, kind of commitment to him as well, I suppose. Um, yeah, he'll go down as one of Norwich City's greatest coaches for, for sure. Um, probably a, a debate for another day, really. But... Um, he certainly leaves the club in a better position and 
it's um it's going to be it's it's a massive job now for whoever takes it on and um it's going to be really important that they try and connect with supporters and people in the same way that he did i think because um as he showed i think it's a a really key part of this job um and i'm i'm in no doubt that he will end up with with a very good job either back in germany if he wants it or if he wants to remain in england then i think that there are probably quite a few championship clubs that would be willing to look at him and the work he's done and the football he's implemented on a budget so his stock is 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 high um but probably i would say probably the right decision for all parties i think we we would all agree on on the evidence of the opening 11 games uh, including the brentford victory that there wasn't enough in performances results uh, to suggest that that this season would be any different and yeah he could have turned it around and norwich could have completed a great escape but I think could do a lot of heavy lifting in, in in those statements, to be honest. So, um, yeah, probably the right time for all parties. And and, and when he does return to Carrow Road, he, he he'll get a um, providing he isn't managing it, which of course he'll get a, a reception befitting of his achievements for sure. Yeah, my, my I think my happiest memories of him are actually I was lucky enough to go over to Tampa, wasn't I? In that when they had that warm weather break midway through the eighteen nineteen title winning season, so it was just after the four three against Millwall. And then when they came back, they went and won for one at Swansea. But um, I, I was there for the meal and stuff that they had on the opening night. And Kevin Keelan was there, who was obviously Norwich City royalty. Um, but I think I'm saying he's about late 70s, mid 70s, something like that. And um, hadn't been involved in the Norwich City sphere and stuff for quite a while. But this is the guy who made the record all-time appearances. It's nearly 700 appearances for Norwich, wasn't it? And the way that Daniel spoke to him and dealt with him um, while he was there... You, it showed that Daniel just got it. He knew that that guy was important to Norwich fans. He had no idea who Kevin Keelan was, obviously, but he knew that whether it's Kevin Keelan or Wes Houlihan, that those those people are very important to the supporters and he treated them with the, the utmost respect. But the next morning, um, I interviewed him in the reception of their hotel and he came down and he hadn't seen me at that meal because there was hundreds of people at, that, at the meal the night before. And he came to walk towards me and he was like, oh, what are you doing here? <laughs> like he had no idea that they meant it was an EDP reporter from home. He just thought he was going to be speaking to a, you know, a, a local reporter or something from whatever the Tampa news or something. Um, so that, that was good fun. And then the, the fans who were actually at the open training sessions and stuff, the way he dealt with everyone, like the Bowles family, for instance, were there with, with Jacob and they, they had their banner and he was get which had, uh, I think it was, you know, a, a cartoon of, of Farker drinking a, a Stein of beer and things like that. And he was so happy to pose for photos and all that sort of stuff. He, he got that element of fandom, I think. And maybe that's German football for you. Maybe they just appreciate supporters that, that little bit more. Um, but yes, it's going to be fascinating to see where Daniel pops up and, and fascinating to see how he gets on. But as Connor mentions, Paddy, they actually won a game of football in the Premier League, which it's been quite a long while, isn't it? Um, that performance, the first half performance, I think it's fair to say that when we reached half time, we were all finding it a little bit surreal, weren't we? Yeah, that's safe to say. And uh, knowing Norwich, as we do, the second half wasn't entirely unforecasted. Un, un, un um yeah, no, I think it's now I think about it in the context of what happened after the game. It, it, not not hundred percent, but that first half that was the de- in the goals particularly. You know the quality of the goals. Um, you know the first goal from Norman, but but also the initial run from Rashica, and then the second goal, not the penalty clearly, but that pass from Norman splitting two centre backs for, for Puki to run on in behind. You know that okay, that is that is that was 
what Daniel was saying prior to the game, we need to get back to something approaching the DNA was the phrase he used. And isolated incidents, yes, but that was kind of the you could almost take out Norman and put Emmy Buendia in to play that pass for that for the build up to the penalty. You know, so that, so there was elements in that first half. I wouldn't say the entire first half was peak Daniel Farker DNA and Norwich at their most attacking, vibrant best. But there was enough evidence of that in the first half. And of course, you know, you walk off the pitch, you two 0 up. Um, that underlines that you've had a very good half of football. But but obviously the second half, then in the context of you know, could this guy over the entire piece? do enough to, to engineer results in the Premier League. That that was a grim backs to the wall, clinging on to what they had. And that said, and he said it himself in his final interview after the game, you know, that 2-0 Brandon Williams, who was very good on the day, um, back to the levels he showed against Arsenal, I thought. Brilliant counter-attacking burst early in that second half, squares it to Pukki, drags an angled shot just wide of the far post. If that goes in 3-0, then, you know, it's a completely different half of football. You know, the Brentford... Uh, colours would have been lowered, I think, at 3-0. And and then maybe Norwich would have gone on and won even more handsomely. And can you now imagine if Stuart was still intent on win, lose or draw, doing what he did, if it, that had come off the back of a 4 or 5 nil, <laughs> that, that that would have given nothing to the reaction of surprise that we'd have got on the back of that type of result. But that's a, an aside. But, um, I don't think you could have done it, could you? I well, think you'd have had to have at least have left it for a couple of days. Difficult. Yeah, very difficult. Yeah, I mean, that took some explaining to do, no doubt about it. But, yeah. but as it turned out, that chance didn't go in. Brentford got themselves back in. And then it was certainly 20, 25 minutes after the goal. That was pretty ferocious. I think that I felt they they ran out of ideas a little bit and they ran out of steam a little bit. Um, and worth pointing out, that's their fourth straight defeat. So for all the kind of, and that didn't do Daniel any favours a few weeks ago where Brentford have started so well and Watford to a lesser extent, but still far more points on the board. You know, Norwich go to Chelsea and get whacked seven the week after. Brentford had probably deserved something from Chelsea, albeit that was at Brentford, but, you know, only got beat 1-0. And I think Chelsea's keeper, Mendy, was the man of the match in that game. So, you know, it just underlines the shift in plates that, you know, you've gone into an international break. And, you know, I was in Thomas Frank's post-match media. And and it surprised me because, obviously, we don't cover Brentford that closely, only when Norwich come up against them. But the tone of a lot of the questioning was they're on the slippery slide and how does he arrest it? You know, not that you've got 12 points from 11 games. What a great start, something to build on. I think there's genuine concern, certainly in the media around that that club, that they might be maybe drawing a parallel with Norwich two seasons ago. They've had that great start. Everything's so exciting, so fresh. They've attacked it. They've continued their momentum from the championship. And now they've hit a very uh, rocky spell in terms of results. And then we'll, it'll be interesting for me uh, to see how Brentford respond the other side of the break. But... Ultimately, yeah, Norwich did win that game of football. They did hang on, but um, you know that second half would have been a bit of a cause of concern, I think, because you know at two nil, having been so good and so compact without the ball, the shape was working. Norman in a deeper line role. We know he's not a nolly skip, but um, but he was doing a good passable impression. They got Rashid to higher up the pitch, and he looked a lot better for that. Williams was bombing on. Um, Pookie had players around him and I think taking Sargent out for me was transformed how they looked in that final third you know with Sargent as we saw against uh, the Leeds game particularly I think the the danger is they just try and hit him and play second balls and that's certainly not how Norwich uh, want to operate with this group of players so so there was a lot of pleasing things in that first half performance but, but the nature of the second half did kind of just bring you back down to earth a little bit that you know possibly Daniel 
wouldn't have been able to sort of, um, you know, turn it around to the extent they need to now over these next period of games. So, um, yes, a win, but uh, I think anybody who left that game thinking that Norwich have turned a corner and uh, everything is going to be hunky-dory from now, I think that would be slightly uh, overplaying what we saw in the second half because, uh, yeah, the second half as a template isn't going to get you too many results in this league because, you know, Brentford banged away, banged away. Tim Krul made one or two excellent reaction stops. They rode their luck in a few other situations, but against better teams in this league, they would have got punished in that second half. So, yeah, maybe we saw the two sides of of Norwich. Um, you know, that first half, a little bit more how we associate Daniel wanting his teams to play. And then the second half, more of the struggles they'd had in the previous 10 games, I think. And how important getting in the lead as well. You know, they're just six minutes in, that obviously had such a big impact on them. Um, Connor, we'll come on to... Todd Cantwell and, and Billy Gilmore, but I'm sure probably in the next pod um, as we look ahead to what the new man's got to deal with. And it's going to be really interesting to see what he makes of the squad. You know, for instance, Sergeant Ida Puki. everyone's sort of got that blank piece of paper, haven't they, that to get into training and really impress and show that, well, no, I'm, for instance, I'm the frontline striker that, you know, I, no, I'm Brandon Williams. I'm from Manchester United. I'm the best left back at this club. They've all got their opportunity to show what they can do. The one, probably the one person that we can guarantee is still going to be in the team, um, maybe other than Tim Krill, would be Matthias Norman, isn't it? Because he is now, to me, it feels like he's becoming a, a leader. It's it, like he's absolutely loving things. And we all knew that goal was coming, didn't we? Oh, he's he's great, isn't he? He's a really good. He's a really good footballer. Um, uh, yeah, you're right. He's probably deserved that for a few weeks. He's uh, the Burnley free kick uh, comes to mind. He's he's had a few. There was one at Everton, wasn't there? That, that was quite close. Um, for for a few games, he's looked the most likely player to to score for Norwich City. So yeah, not not a great shock. And 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 actually, it's funny that the goal comes from a strike that he looked slightly off balance and didn't quite look like he hit it the way he wanted to hit it so um yeah but I mean the, the goal aside as, as Pad mentioned his his defensive work was outstanding I think he he offers so much to that team um for, from a defensive perspective got the quality to to play the the type of pass that we saw him slot through for Timmy Puki for the second um yeah, he, he can do it all, and I think irrespective of uh, of what Norwich City managed to do this season, if 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 they're not in the Premier League next season, I'd be shocked if he wasn't. Um, because there's been a, a few times that we've been in grounds this season, and, and and you've just seen people kind of make a note of him mentally, um, uh, of what he's doing and the quality he has. Um, and no doubt there'll be people watching Norwich City's games doing exactly the same because there's, with the exception of maybe Chelsea, where. Everyone, everyone had a, a really bad afternoon on that occasion. He's been really good in in every game since he's come in, and I'm still not fully convinced that he's absolutely 100% fully fit. So, um, yeah, it's, it's Norwich fans know uh, when, when a lone player arrives that you've got to be very careful not to not to kind of fall for them a, a little bit. Um, but he's he's making that awfully hard, I think, because of uh, of his performances and the quality that he provides. Um, and I think. Yeah, increasingly, as as we look to whoever is next, for all the, the talk's going to be about Billy Gilmore and Todd Campwell and Shollis, uh, I guess, to some extent, and, and and where all these parts fit in, he looks like someone who has, has to be in there. He looks like someone who has to be a constant of whoever the next man's team um, looks like, and he has to be at the heart of it. And um, 
I would be shocked if we got to Southampton and beyond and he isn't an integral part of this team. And obviously then the the conversation turns to whether Norwich City can stay in the Premier League and a massive bonus of them doing that would be that they could they could keep him on a permanent basis and it would be lovely to watch him play football every week, to be honest. So that would um, that would be really nice. But yeah, a, a top player, certainly on, on the evidence so far, the pick of their, their summer recruitment, I would say. So that's very much hope that he survives his Norway duty because he is back with them, isn't he? Um, and they, they've got important games. Uh, he's one of 11 Norwich players away on international duty. You've got Rashitza, Aarons, Ida and Omar with Ireland. Yanulis and Jolis, um, Greece play Spain. They've got to win that one if they to have any chance of qualifying. Uh, McLean and Gilmore with Scotland, who um, should get qualification wrapped up, but you never know with Scotland, do you? Uh, Grant Hanley not in to uh, in that squad because of his groin injury hopefully nothing too long term Ozan Kabak equally hasn't joined up with with Turkey because of glandular fever which kept him out of the Brentford game uh, Pohetas with Poland Puki with Finland again they they've got a massive game they need to win in Bosnia because they play France um, in Helsinki in the final game although France should be should have already won the group by that point because they play Kazakhstan in their first game. So, and that could be a very big game for Puki as well because that would be his hundredth cap if he plays in both games. So he'd only be the fifth Finnish player to do that. Of course, we already know he's their record goal scorer. Uh, Norman, I've already mentioned. So I think that's all eleven. Um, there's a couple of under twenty ones and things like that. But um, yeah, we'll we'll keep you up to date with with all of that as best we can. Uh, of course, we are um, on a hair trigger for the big news or for anything moving. So. Keep it locked, pinkin.com, EDP and Evening News. Um, I always close the pod by saying we will catch up with you very soon. And uh, before I come to that, Pad wants to say something. Sorry, Dave. I, I'm trying to, yeah, it's it's like a bit Neville Chamberlain for you, history buffs. So I've got a piece of paper here. Don't worry, it's nothing exciting, nothing to do with managing. <laughs> Mr. David, uh, had a statement. No, 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 no. I just want to take the floor I, because I've been carrying this around for at least the last. 10 podcasts we've recorded and every time we've done what we've done one I thought damn I've forgotten again just to give these guys a, a name check we, I don't know if you boys did you boys get anything in the post I've, we basically got a letter from the America Canaries well at least there we go Connor's got it so so we I think we I think we might have all or at least that was I got the sense was going to be the plan um and it was essentially well I'll read who they are first and foremost obviously they know who they are but anybody listening to this pod they are the Grassroots social media group of Norwich supporters in North, Central and South America, from English expats to new fans of the Premier League. We're dedicated to our support of Norwich City Football Club. And the, the guy who sent me this letter, and I'm assuming Connor as well, as Jeffrey Uack. Apologies for the pronunciation or mispronunciation. Oh, Jeff, yeah, I met him in Tampa, yeah. Oh, well, there you go then. So you've met him and me and Connor seem to have had letters. And basically he sent what I assume is uh, like a sticker, a book to put on a book. What have you? Um, and basically, this is a small token of our gratitude for all the coverage you provide in the Pinken. Uh, talks about insight. He's obviously got the wrong people, I think. There, but uh, we'll, we'll <laughs> that. Um, to available to us to absorb from across the pond. Many thanks for your hard work, dedication on the Ball City. We are Premier League. Say we are Premier League, and we're probably going to leave it there by hoping that remains the case with the new manager at helm. But, but anyway, hat, hat tip to uh, the America Canaries. Keep it. Keep it locked to the pinkin. But uh, if anybody else out there wants to send us any merchandise, feel free. <laughs> yeah, always. And uh, yeah, by all means, if you ever want to get in touch with us, then uh, the pinkin accounts are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, if you can beat my dad's story of not finding out about Farker until uh, match of the day, 
then uh, by all means let us know as well we obviously had a few examples of people who were uh, sort of sunday and, and monday ish um but if you know someone that managed to get to tuesday or something and still didn't realize then, then do let us know um but for now as i say uh, keep it locked on our websites we will keep you up to date with all the latest as best we can and as soon as that big news breaks we will have every angle covered for you and no doubt we'll be back for another podcast to uh discuss that in full but for now thank you very much for listening and we'll catch up with you very soon